One day he uh, he went off. He went to about 250 or 300 feet. He never had a great pitch, um, good enough for where I was was hawking. One day he he went off to a pitch in quite a blustery, windy day. Um, came uh, came down, missed um, the partridge in the covey that I had flushed completely, and then continued to harry it. Hey, how's it going, everyone? Welcome back for the next episode of the Falcon Retold podcast and what is now the eighth episode of our international series featuring falconers from the UK. And without a couple of key people, this series wouldn't have been able to take place. And those two people are Simon Tyres, who is also the author of The Specialist Falcon, and Neil Davies, who is the editor of Pursuit Falconry magazine. And if you haven't had a chance to check out these great publications yet i highly recommend you do so if you want a copy of the specialist falcon head to thespecialistfalcon.com and you can also get autographed copies from simon from that website as well it's a great modern book on long wing especially and is a good source of information using a lot of modern technology as well so if you haven't got your copy yet i highly recommend you do so And if you want to go and subscribe to Pursuit Falconry magazine, head to pursuitfalconry.co.uk and you can subscribe there. There's always tons of great information and content in each new issue. So if you haven't yet, I highly recommend you do that as well. And we're down to the last couple episodes that were recorded at the Valley Expo before we moved on and recorded at other locations. But... This was a very busy weekend, and the second-to-last person here that I recorded at the Valley Expo was Gordon Meller, and Gordon is also the chairman for the Hawk Board, and we kind of discussed some aspects of that as well as his personal falconry, so I'm going to go ahead and turn things over to the conversation with Gordon Meller. Here we go. It's been a great weekend, and I mean, how's it how's it been for you so far? Yeah, I've really enjoyed this weekend. I mean, it's because it's the first one of its type here. It's been uh, it's certainly had its uh, teething problems, and it's uh, it's been a little bit uh, bitty, I think. Um, but it has shown what is possible. A really exciting, uh, really exciting event. Equally, there's been some really good falconers and really interesting people here, which, you know, means it's a pleasure to spend a couple of days in this part of the world. Yeah, no, it's been great. And I've been very humbled um, by a lot of people's, I guess, willingness and kind of just excitedness, if you will, to kind of uh, be willing to share some of their their stories and uh, experiences with us. And no, it's it's been it's been great on my end so far too. I've I've really uh really enjoyed my time here so far. People are like, how oh, how you enjoy England? I'm like, well, the one strip of road that I've been down so far, it seems really swell. But I mean, I'm sure I'll see more this week. But yeah. you know, anyway, <laughs> yeah. And indeed, you're not far from uh, from the uh, the hawking grounds of the old hawking club, and uh, you know. And and other sort of rook hawking venues from our past. Not that they are used anymore, really extensively for falconry. But this uh, this part of the world and just a little further east is really important for British falconry. Cool. So there's a lot of history and a lot yeah. of a uh, yeah. lot of heritage around this area. Then overall, yeah. yes, indeed, yes, indeed. I mean, you know, um, 
Roger Upton, a former president of ours and a long-standing grouse hawker, um, flew um, flew uh, rooks and crows here in the 50s and 60s. Um, of course, it was more open then. Um, you know, there's been a lot of tree planting since, which to a long winger is, of course, a real shame, but uh, <laughs> nonetheless. And, it, uh, you know, so this area has a strong, strong history, um, you know, and, of course, uh, further further towards Wiltshire, the uh, the old hawking club, of course, rode after uh, after um, peregrines flown at rooks for, and that was their major major form of of the sport. When the area became fenced, that actually killed the 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 mounted pursuit of falcons chasing rooks, and that in turn led to the end of the club. That's how it was important. So the old old hawking club actually ceased because largely because their ground actually became untenable for the sort of falconry that they practiced hmm that's interesting yeah and no, i like i said i i i want to touch a little bit more i, I definitely want to touch more on some of the history surrounding mm -hmm. this area and you being the you know the former president of, of your respective club and, and whatnot mm -hmm. i definitely want to hear a lot about the just the evolution of how things were then versus now and you know, if you could go yeah. just kind of start with that. Yes, certainly. I mean, <clears throat> I mean, falconry, of course, from its sort of medieval origins actually um, became, and I know we now use this term as uh, to, to characterize uh, horse racing, but it became the sort of sport of kings, the sport of the elite, and was highly, highly socially significant um, up till about the 1660s or whatever, then it started to go into decline, partially because of the enclosure of open land um, and partially because times had changed. The advent of the firelock, the shot, the, the pre predecessor to the shotgun meant that um, it was easier. But also, it was easier to hunt with a, with a, with what we now can consider a, a firearm. But... Um, it was uh, also, it just lost its tenure in terms of the uh, the social elite um, and the way they lived their lives. And so it went into something of a decline. There were one or two really, really significant figures who tried to keep it going. Um, Colonel Thornton, Lord Orford and what have you, um, and and they uh, they had uh, at the sort of end of the uh, the sort of seventeen and uh, early eighteen hundreds they uh, they had a determining effect and uh, you know so it was always practiced it didn't die out it never became extinct in Britain but it became um, it became far rarer and there were small groups of falconers who sometimes banded together in clubs and what have you it struggled through the um, through the sort of the the 19th century but then the old hawking club actually um actually took up um took took up the mantle and as i described just a few moments ago they flew in this part of the world peregrines passage peregrines um at at rooks um and some crows but passage peregrines at rooks and crows game hawking was was popular but not as 
big a club event as was um, the, that very social event of riding, uh, you know, riding after um, uh, after um, peregrines at, at Rooks. And uh, they, as I described earlier, sort of came to an end when mounted falconry stopped being possible. You just couldn't, you know, the advent of barbed wire was a nightmare for anybody on a horse, never mind a falconer on a horse. So it was it was something that uh, that saw the end of the formal um, the formal old old hawking club. wasn't helped by, of course, the First World War, um, which saw a, a number of uh, of potentially very good falconers, of course, falling conflict in France, and so it um, went through a, a little bit of a. Um, a, a a hiatus. The British Falconers Club comes out of the demise of the old Hawking Club. Now, again, it was reasonably elite, not perhaps as elite as it had been a couple of hundred years before, but it was uh, it was often the the military, the the a little bit of the landed gentry, those who had easy access to land, um, who flew and. Comparatively small numbers. The British Falconers Club was very uh, quite known and sometimes still considered elitist. It isn't at all um, now, in my view. But um, but so falconry rumbled along. Um, the likes of um, Stephen Frank and Roger Upton really reinvented uh, grouse hawking on the moors of, of Yorkshire further north and uh, some in Derbyshire, but in Scotland. And they reinvented that in the 50s and 60s, um, it having really fallen into such decline as I think one could consider it had been practised very, very little previously. Um, because Roger um, Roger Upton was um, was put in touch with some falconers from the Gulf, from, from the Middle East, um, there began a relationship which had hitherto not been very strong. So there was a relationship with, uh, with the Gulf states, which, when we went through the 60s and 70s, facilitated a small import of hawks from abroad that you, when you couldn't, after the peregrine decline, um, due to DDT in the environment, you couldn't get uh, you couldn't get domestic peregrines, and so that was kept alive by that. Then we get to um, it was a small a small fairly elite activity, but becoming more. It's not quite the right word to use, but it was becoming more democratic um, about the time I started. Um, and I, I started, uh, I got my first hawk when I was at boarding school and the gardener used to let me keep it loose in his, uh, in one of his gardening huts um, over the summer vacation. And I used to fly this little kestrel, which had one leg. It had been pointed out to me that there was a kestrel screaming in a, uh, in a kestrel nest um, um, sort of, uh, you know, one sort of late spring. I had climbed the tree, being interested in birds of prey, I had climbed the tree, found this kestrel. It had a broken leg. How a broken leg happens in a nest, I do not know. But I I, uh, I took it. I thought, well, obviously, I'm a schoolboy. I don't have any wherewithal to take this to a vet. <laughs> and I don't think any vets in those days really would have known what to do with it. So I splinted and uh, bound this leg. 
a bit too tight. The leg went black and fell off. So I had a one-legged kestrel. <laughs> However, that kestrel was, um, you know, were, became very tame, flew wonderfully, never caught anything. A yeah, little uh, Eurasian kestrel. They're not greatly predatory um, in a captive state, but, uh, you know, and I, uh, I started with that. I had become interested in birds of prey because in years, years before that, when I lived in Malaysia, my father was in the military. My father gave me a book and it had a watercolour painting in it of um, an Arab falconer, an Arab with a, um, with a saker on his, uh, on his fist. Um, and he was standing in front of a, uh, in front of a, a, a racing camel with a saluki. And, uh, and I had that book open on my bedside table for years. Unfortunately, I have no recollection where that book has gone, but that was my first interest in Birds of Prey. It was this picture of an Arab with a, a, a saker falcon. Um, so I'd, I'd been interested. I had got lucky. I don't know that the one-legged kestrel thought it was lucky, but I got lucky by getting that Bird of Prey, and that started me. Um, I, um, I then became a pain for one or two local falconers and, uh, you know, I was forever knocking on their door and, uh, and, you know, how do you do this? How do you do that? Where can I get a hawk from? I flew some sparrow hawks, um, that, uh, with varying success. And then a member of the British falconers club, and this is a very long time ago now, gave me an old goshawk. And I flew that old goshawk for a, uh, for a couple of years and was, uh, I thought, you know, I am a proper falconer. I went then, I think, to the second Woodhall Spa and realized I wasn't such a proper falconer at all. <laughs> I saw some very good falcons flown. And, uh, but, I, but I also saw people sort of struggling along just like me, which sort of opened the door to me thinking, well, I can do this. You know? And so that was important. Um, I have always flown uh, very rarely uh, have I ventured to the uh, to the the moors of the north I have always flown lowland uh, lowland game um, or a lowland form of rook hawking um, when I was younger and fitter I would fly not as uh, falconry predecessors uh, mounted on a horse but I would fly at rooks and crows uh, on foot and run miles um, and I was fitter and I could do it then I can't do that anymore I'm uh, I'm no longer in that sort of condition but my hawking was composed around that sort of rook hawking and a little bit of game hawking uh, on lowland ground not ideal not nearly as open as some of the ground we have here but uh, not ideal but it has been the the mainstay of my falconry and that uh, that was what I did. I then I was by that time going regularly to what was the Eastern Region British Falcons Club meetings, and uh, and the uh, the chairman of the Eastern Region in the in the nineteen ninety or I think it's about nineteen ninety might have been nineteen ninety one said to me, "Will you become the Eastern Region Rep?" Which meant traveling to council meetings, um, which were held in the Midlands, um, oh, about three or four times a year. Um, I did. 
I got on to, to the BFC Council. And apart from a short spell of about two years, I've been on the BFC Council ever since. I'm coming to the end of my tenure. And there will be many people who will smile and think about time too. He's done it too long. But uh, <laughs> in that time, I, I, was, uh, I was an Eastern Region rep. I became our very first uh, conservation officer. I then uh, became a... Uh, I think, <coughs> let me think, I took up another role. I can't remember what it was. I then, in uh, in the early 2000s, there was a little bit of a hiatus in the club. I stood and was elected president. Uh, on, I stood on the basis that I would only do it for one term. It was not an, it was not an ambition of mine. I just felt the club need to, needed to go through some changes and uh, I could not persuade anybody else to do it. However, I won that election. I went in, served my term um, as president. In that term, I had made contact with uh, a gentleman I've men mentioned previously, a very important figure in British falconry, um, Roger Upton. Roger was such an important figure um, that it was something of a uh, something missing from the BFC, the British Falconers Club's CV, that he had never played a prominent part. So I spoke to Roger, who was a reasonably elderly gentleman at that point and said, I felt that he would be ideally placed to become president of the BFC. And I was happy at the end of my three-year term to hand over to, to Roger Upton. And I think the club, and this sounds very self-serving and I apologize for that, but I think the club is better for that move. Um, and Roger was a, was a good president for us. Um, it's subsequently handed on to a different president who has done his, his spell and will be standing down this autumn. And we have another, you know, very, very well-respected senior falconer who will take over um, the British Falconers Club um, from him. To, uh, to bore you further, um, I became in the early 2000s involved with the Hawk Board that had been set up in the British, uh, by, the, by the government actually, by the Home Office, as the advisory panel for captive hawks at around the time that there was going to be legislative change around keeping um, birds of prey. And uh, so I became, uh, I became a member of the Hawk Board, um, a, a body that is, that represents British, uh, British falconers and captive bird of prey keepers um, is not a governing body. It is just a representative body. It has its detractors. People either love it or hate it or don't think at all about it. But I've been on uh, on Hawk Board for most of the time since. I'm obviously drawn towards falconry politics, if you can use that in the broadest sense. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I have been on Hawk Board since. I have for the last sort of I think seven, seven, maybe even eight years, been uh, been the chairman of the Hawk Board, and I will do another term. And I say this with some regret. I was going to stand down um, because I do believe that everybody has their sell by date, and it would be good to have fresh blood and in 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 post. I was going to stand down, but there were very few takers. It is the Hawk Board itself is a fairly thankless task. And uh, I and some of my colleagues are obviously suckers for punishment. But we are, 
involved in representing falconry particularly, but other hawk keeping uh, sort of activities, including breeding, pest control and the like, um, with, uh, with the government. We are consulted regularly, sometimes more than others, uh, but we're consulted over legislative changes and what have you. We've had some successes, we've had some failures, as with any uh, engagement with government. We comparatively recently were hijacked in Scotland and the blue hare, the mountain hare, um, was removed from a quarry list. Um, it doesn't look like we will get that back. That's very, very disturbing from a falconry perspective. Having uh, having a game species removed from one's uh, from one's grip is something that is um, that is regrettable, and we are not used to. Um, so that was a major blow. But we have had other um, we have had other successes. We have defended uh, falconry quite vigorously. Um, there is an ongoing and has been evident for the last, uh, I think probably for the last 10 or 12 years, ongoing tightening of our legislation. But we have been consulted very recently about wild take, which is very unusual in the UK, um, taking, taking birds from the wild for falconry, but it is still on the statute book. I've got a feeling our government might like to remove it from the statute book. We, are, we have been consulted and we are fighting very hard to have it left. I don't think there's much case there's a lot of captive breeding and um, and there's a good number of captive or domestically bred falcons available, uh, peregrines particularly uh, available. There is no reason to think we need to take from the wild. But we don't want it removed from the statute book, the ability to apply for a license, because we don't know what the situation is going to be like in 10 or 20 years time. So we've, we're working currently, that's, that's ongoing, we're working very hard on that. Of course, in... British terms, we've been hit quite hard um, by avian influenza, which has uh, is evidently now endemic in the wild bird population in the UK, and that has caused some restriction. Um, I do, however, believe, now this is not hawkboard policy, but it is my belief, that falconers have to get on and fly their hawks. We have to go out and fly our hawks. Yes, we need to take good biosecurity measures. Yes, we need to uh, be careful and not perhaps hawk in the vicinity of major poultry um, sort of concerns. But we need to get out and practice our, our, our falconry because our falconry will, will die by default if we keep the hawks inside and just wait for things like avian influenza to leave our um, environment. So yeah, it's a, it's a, we're at an interesting point. We've got, and I can now say this because I'm old, we've got as good a falconers now as I think I have ever seen, a really high, uh, a, a sort of a high performing group of uh, some young people who, uh, who fly their hawks and falcons to, a really high standard. We should be very proud of those. Of course, we have a, a much wider, a, a much wider footprint, and some sort of hobbyists who really do need upskilling. But I think we see that everywhere. But I think British falconry is in a good state at the moment. Yes, there are concerns about um, flying non-native and hybrid species, and uh, there are always things that we can do better. But in actual fact some of the events uh, that um, 
or some some of the uh, the achievements of British falconers have been quite extraordinary. Um, of which this uh, this event here at Fowley, um, you know the uh, the the falcon racing and the um, falcons at the row crow, the automated quarry, are um, they are an aspect of our sport. However, it is all orientated towards what falconry is, which is a hunting activity, and it's that hunting activity that both um, that both motivates British falconers. And ultimately, I believe that we are the best at. So I, I'm not saying that we're best at nationally. I mean, that's what we are looking to achieve is good, uh, is, is good quality, traditional falconry. Um, I'm not making any judgment about falconry elsewhere. Um, but uh, yeah, so th things are good. Things, things are good here. We're under pressure with uh, with quarry numbers we're under pressure with legislation we're under pressure in a in terms of uh, the public's perception of welfare but we have a lot going for us uh, and you know falconry is in a good state um it's in uh, you know we have uh, some practitioners who and some people who i'd give my right arm to be as good as so uh, <laughs> you know i'm very proud of what has been achieved great well yeah i mean any any place that has any kind of hunting period mm -hmm. is always going to face some degree of negative perception or pushback or it's just the times that we live in. Yeah. Um, I mean, all we can continue to do is just try and put things out there in as positive mm -hmm. light as we can. And it does always help having some, some group. I mean, who the group is and who it's made of is always subject to change and is also another matter of, of debate and always will be amongst uh, said hunting communities. However, yeah, I mean, if you don't have anybody advocating for you and you don't have some kind of united front to plead your case to the other powers that be, then then, yeah, things eventually just get swept under the rug or you get pushed aside. And yeah, I mean, it's. I, I, I don't want to see that any more than you do anywhere. Yeah. So, No, I absolutely agree. And, uh, you know, I always say when it comes to the likes of, of the BFC um, and the Hawk Ward, <clears throat> if they were to fold, falconers would reinvent them because the, the need is evident. I don't much mind who runs them, what they're called um, and what have you. I would just like falconers to contribute to have their voices heard and to uh, to work for you know for for the sport of falconry which has brought me so much and so much pleasure and uh, you know I've met some some wonderful people even though as I think I said to you earlier that most of my 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 hawking is done between me and a falcon it's not done with anybody else but I've met some wonderful falconers and some really good falconer conservationists we've got a lot to offer and, uh, and we keep having to fight our corner. Yeah, well, and, and there's nothing wrong with wanting to um, to keep you know, your your falconry to yourself. I mean, there's lots of guys that I know that that's kind of like their personal shrine yeah. or whatever, and they don't really, I mean, that's just not their thing, and that's perfectly fine. But, you know, everybody's got to figure out what works for them. But going back to that, I mean, remind, refresh my memory again. Which region of the country did you say you were from? Um, I, I am on the very edge of the eastern region, which is East Anglia. Um, and it's the, uh, if you look at a map of England, it's the bumpy out bit just above London. Um, it juts out into uh, what we call the North Sea. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm 
part of officially I'm part of the eastern region but I'm right on the the um I'm right on the edge of that so I'm on the Bedsbucks border the Bedfordshire Buckinghamshire border in mixed open countryside um but it has suited me you know and it's close enough to where I work where I earn my living that means that uh, as a working falconer um I can uh, I can actually you know practice several days uh, several days a week in busy periods perhaps i'm only out two days a week in less busy periods i'll be out three days a week plus using the weekends makes you know certainly my brand of long wing falconry practical cool well i mean what what exactly is it in your region or what's kind of been the primary uh, prey set prey species that you've that you continue to hunt right well that Historically, in the, in the eastern region, apart from partridge and pheasant, but historically it was it was heron. Mm. You know, it was in in the old days it was heron. Of course, we don't do that. Uh, we don't do that anymore. They're entirely protected. Um, but it, it's game hawking is the is the key. There's a little bit of rook hawking there, not very much, um, but but game hawking and some very very fine practitioners. You know, some people who uh, who have devoted their lives to uh, to performance at uh, at game and uh, so partridge and pheasant hawking has been really what it's about there gotcha well uh, out of curiosity then i mean i've asked a couple of these of these other guys mm. that i've talked to over the weekend kind of what hunting for them looks like because the terrain to some degree in some areas might be mm. similar to us in the u.s but some of your prey species are going to be a little different and, but what, yeah. what's, what's the approach and uh, for you okay. and, and with the, the types of right. birds that you hunt with and. Right. I am in, in recent, uh, in recent years, I have sort of combined myself to small peregrines. I have a, a female Barbary falcon at the moment and a Brookii tearsaw. So a small subspecies of the peregrine. And because I don't hunt pheasant, I hunt partridge what you might call Huns, um, but uh, I hunt partridge um, and I would have to say regrettably their numbers are in what looks like terminal decline. But uh, but yes, the, uh, the it's mixed country. You obviously, because of the way we're set up, you have to have permission from the landowner to hunt in the UK. And, uh, and so <clears throat> I can't hunt wherever I see partridge. I have to hunt on particular... Uh, sections of land and interestingly enough grey partridge have become so scarce that I've recently lost a farm that I've hunted on for 20 odd years because the farmer became aware that the partridge and this was not deliberate on my part but I had just always referred to them as partridge he became aware that they were grey partridge not Frenchmen not uh, red leg partridge um, which are mostly released for shooting um, grey partridge are the the traditional um, the traditional partridge. He was so excited about gray, uh, having grey partridge. I lost my hawking ground because he didn't want anybody to touch them. <laughs> I can't blame him. I regret losing it. It was a lovely bit of land, but um, you know. So you you go out. You go to where you have permission, and you sit. Um, the way I work it, I do not. Uh, I do not run a dog for lowland uh, for for lowland game hawking. I sit and scan look look for signs of the partridge um if you don't get them but you know the ground well and you know where they're likely to be sometimes you walk and wait to bump them to put them up and what have you and then you try and get a flight i fly one hawk at a time um, and i don't mean a 
cast. I only ever have one hawk in training at a time. So uh, I fly my one hawk. It gets one flight. Um, hopefully it kills something. If it doesn't, it, uh, it is called in and we go home. And that's the way I sustain my hawking. If I took too much off the ground, there wouldn't be anything there to hunt. So I have to eke out my uh, my small partridge and declining, as I've already said, declining partridge numbers, eke out for a whole season by being quite, uh, you know, quite careful with them. So as I say, one flight, one kill or otherwise, but, um, you know, is the, uh, is the staple. And I fly perhaps for occasionally five days a week. Well, I mean, anybody that can, I mean, it seems like these days, anybody that can manage to hunt more than mm-hmm. two or three times a week, it seems to become more of a luxury in a world where we have to, uh, continue to, to work, work, work yeah. and, and, uh, you know, can, you know, keep busy schedules and, and stuff. But, uh, but I mean, over the years, I mean, I know that you, you're land access, like you said, is mostly privatized and you've always had those kind of hurdles to deal with. And I mean, was there ever, was there a time that before though, where it was easier or was it? Certainly it has taken, it is, it is becoming more and more difficult to persuade landowners to allow you onto their land. Undoubtedly, um, you know, and more and more difficult um, in a sort of sense that it's not necessarily that uh, it's anything to do with falconers. It's to do with people on the land. Um, there's a good deal of pressure on land for walkers and stuff like that. Um, we have sort of quite uh, quite en- uh, endemic in some areas um, what is now illegal coursing of hares on land. So the response from landowners, and I'm not criticizing it, it's just an observation, the response from landowners has been no, just, you know, don't come. And of course, uh, the amount of British countryside that you can actually wander onto um, without, uh, you know, without permission is comparatively little. And um, so it's, it is becoming, I would, I'm very glad that I am now fairly old and I have, uh, you know, the most of my hawking is behind me because I'd hate to be starting out now. It is tough. It is tough, you know, for, uh, for young falconers to get, to get ground to hawk over. I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's pretty much true for everywhere. Mm-hmm. I've discussed it many times before, but I mean, we lose, I mean, even in places where you, you know, have like public lands mm-hmm. and things that, that we have, even, I mean, mm-hmm. we just, we lose more and more, more and more spots every year to, to development and construction as well and, and other stuff. So, but, um, but kind of going back some then to your role and your, your responsibilities for the political side of things, which, you know, all the power to you, any kind of politics is not for me. I try my best to stay out of them, but, or, or not be the subject of them or otherwise like most people. But, um, all that being said, Kind of discuss a little bit more than about the. I, were, were you involved in a lot of the transitional process from whenever you used to be able to do more wild take before, as opposed to now, where almost everything is captive bred obtained? Or yeah, um, I have certainly. I mean, since as I said, since the early nineties, I've been involved in in what I perhaps broadly call falconry politics. Um, 
most of that, I would have to say, is inward looking. It's looking at the falconry fraternity. It's explaining, educating, and you know, trying to uh, trying to ex- uh, trying to promote the legal context in which falconry has to uh, ha- has to exist. Largely because. It is tempting, and it is tempting for young and new falconers, perhaps with a different view of authority, to um, to think I'll do what I want. The damage in a small, uh, a smallish country like uh, like the UK can be immense um, if people just go off piste, as it were, and do whatever they see fit. Um, and so, a lot of a lot of falconry is trying to. Uh, to get the best out of our uh, get the best out of our practitioners, then of course the next step is dealing with our legislators, um, and that is increasingly. I think you, you've already acknowledged is it we're increasingly in the spotlight. You know the areas that we operate in are increasingly uh, confined, and it is one of those things that you just, uh, you know, is just a, na- a time a time of uh, of how, where we are in in this point in history. Um, I would love to see it uh, to turn about, but uh, I think uh, you know we uh, we get small victories that we must celebrate. We also get uh, get some reverses because things are getting tighter, particularly in an overcrowded small island. We had a good deal of hope that leaving the European Union for Brexit, and I'm not becoming overly political here, I, uh, I would have to say I was a Remainer, not a Brexiteer, but, um, <laughs> but leaving the, the European Union um, through the process of Brexit, we had thought would free us up from some quite difficult European legislation. The reality has not been that at all. It's been really very sad to see that the the reality has been that we are perhaps now as regulated, perhaps more so in some respects, than some of our European colleagues. Um, some, some European falconers are able to come over in the grouse season and go to the, the moors in Scotland and have been able to work that even with very difficult transport legislation and what have you. Almost no British falconers are able to travel to continental Europe to fly there. Um, somehow it says to me that we've got the whole process of Brexit the wrong way around. You know? <laughs> but so be it. Yeah, so it is, um, you know, um, I would have to, I observe that, uh, you know, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a lawyer. I, uh, I, I'm not overly motivated by legislation. What has kept me both interested and motivated, sometimes not motivated, but kept me mostly motivated in falconry politics, is it's really about people. It's dealing with people. And it's dealing with people who share an, an interest, a passion of mine. We often see it in very different ways, and you will know very well that falconers can be damning about each other, um, you know. And but you know, we all do share that same passion. Now it's beyond me to unite falconers without a shadow of a doubt. But I do believe that where I can uh, contribute, um, I should. 
I owe that to my sport. I owe that to, uh, to those who are going to come after me. And so that's what's kept me involved. I mean, it has driven me nuts. Um, I once had a full head of hair that I no longer have. But, um, you know, it is something that I deem as important. Many very, very fine falconers would, would die rather than become involved in, in falconry politics and good on them, you know, more power to their elbow. But, uh, you know, it's what I can contribute and it's what I'm happy to do. So um, at least for the next few years, the next three or four years, I do have to step out. I do have to start thinking, well, you know, um, I'm no longer a young man. I want to do just what I want to do. I don't want to take time out during the hawking season to be traveling across the country to meet with people. I no longer want to uh, to be sitting in front of our legislators um, arguing the point when I know that most of them are not interested and are not very receptive to our position. You know, so there's a whole bunch of whole bunch of things which are negatives. Do I regret it? Not one bit. You know, I am I am both uh, very uh, proud sounds too strong a word. I am very pleased to have been able to play a small part in the protection of our sport. And if, uh, you know, if future generations look back on that, well, good. If they don't, also good. It's not going to affect me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, you, it's not like you're doing it for praise or glory. You're just doing it because you feel like it's, yeah, a, yeah. you know, just a personal passion yeah. or responsibility. Yeah. That's right. That's yeah. right. And it's, it, it is something that, uh, you know, there are, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people think, oh, you know, being president of the British Falconers Club is, is a very big deal. It's only as big a deal as you make it. It really is only what uh, you know, what you um, what you can uh, what you can can contribute to the club. Being chairman of the Hawk Board, yes, it carries a little bit of kudos, but only for those who think the Hawk Board's worth having. And there's many who don't, um, you know. But I will, you know, for my own, uh, you know, from my own perspective, I will speak to anybody. I will listen to anybody. I don't always agree, but uh, and I am happy to go and represent falconry. And people may say, yes, through uh, through my lens, the falconry that I think we need to defend. Um, but that is fairly mainstream, and uh, I'm happy to do that. So that has been that. Has been that. I go back, and as uh, we've already discussed, I go back, and during the season, I fly my hawk uh, on my own. Um, during the week, I have some successes and some failures. Um, you know, I have compared, I've already said I have two, two falcons at home. Occasionally in the past, I've had a few more, but I've never been a big, uh, a big falcon owner. They're only worth owning from my perspective if you can use them in your falconry. I'm not a hawk collector, as it were. And, uh, I did have a little dabble in breeding, um, in breeding, uh, you know, in the early 2000s and bred successfully some peregrine barberies, very small number. I stopped that very soon because it became it became fairly evident that um, that I was a little bit of a haphazard breeder. Really, it was a backyard breeding, and it was something that other people do very much better. I have recently um, reviewed for the British Falconers Club Journal Nick Fox's um, Nick Fox's new version of a uh, uh, understanding the bird of prey and. Uh, it made me smile when I read, and, and of course I had read the, the first edition, but when I read this new edition, it made me smile to think 
how meticulous and carefully planned and well understood his breeding was, which is of course why he has been a significant breeder, and how very much sort of hit and hope mine, mine was. So it did make me laugh about those efforts. I won't go there. There's quite enough, uh, quite enough peregrines being bred um, to, to allow me to, uh, to have, uh, you know, have hawks to fly for the rest of my falconry career. I do not need to breed, but it did make me smile how I thought at the time I was doing a wonderful job. I think some of the successful breeders now would think we need to take this uh, this person under our wing and teach him how it's done. <laughs> well, I think that there's always somebody that's going to think that about other people mm -hmm. to some extent or another. I mean, there's there's always a seems like there's always those in every aspect of life that thinks that you should be doing things their way, you know. But uh, it, that's that's neither here nor there. But well, I, I guess this would be a good time to do our our usual ask of. I mean, is there a particular uh, memory, a particular, um, I mean, uh, bird, a particular hunt that always will stick out in your mind as like one of your your favorite experiences? Or yeah. oh, I mean, yes. I mean, I, I I regularly sort of have my my top ten flights, and I think they change with the weather, you know. But uh, <laughs> but yes, I did. I was fortunate enough. Um, Although most of my success has been uh, has has been with peregrines, I was fortunate enough to uh, to fly a um, a little socially uh, imprinted prairie tearsel some years ago. I, I socially imprinted him myself. I did not breed him, but I socially imprinted him myself. And to my regret, he only lasted about two months. Um, he killed himself by di diving into a pond on a late November morning um, and died of cold shock. Um, that said, that little tearsel provided me with more unadulterated joy in the, the couple of months I flew him, I hunted with him. I flew him a few, obviously a few weeks, nearly a month before he was ready for hunting. Um, he was a magnificent hunter, just a magnificent hunter for someone with, and I say this, you know, I, I don't think, uh, I don't think my field craft is bad, but it is not as good as some people's field craft. That hawk was the most forgiving um, long wing I have ever flown. And, uh, and after Partridge, which I started him at, he took, and of course I won't go into any details, he took a good deal of other quarry species. He was not, he was not wedded to, uh, to Partridge, but, uh, but he was aimed at Partridge. And one day he, uh, he went off, he went to about 250 or 300 feet. He never had a great pitch, um, good enough for where I was, was hawking. One day he, he went off to a pitch in quite a blustery, windy day, um, came, uh, came down, missed um, the partridge in the covey that I had flushed completely, and then continued to harry it by going back to 50 or 60 feet and stooping again and stooping again. And they went round, and this is just fortuitous, they actually did a large arc which means it, it actually, they, the flight was never very far away from me. And I saw more direct hunting in that flight than I might see in a whole season because it was, uh, it was never more than about 50 or 60 yards away. And, um, and eventually he took the, he took the, uh, the quarry, uh, he took the partridge and, um, 
and what have you, probably from a stoop from a, or, you know, 70 feet or so, not, not great. Some people would have considered that a rat hunt. I considered it a real, a, a, just a really quality, quality flight because that hawk was so tenacious. He did not give up. He, uh, you know, he didn't make contact with the, uh, with the first stoop and that hawk then flew for, oh, I should think, uh, a couple of minutes more before he eventually uh, he eventually knocked the partridge down, and I I will carry that to my grave. The the sort of the unadulterated joy with which when I went to pick up this little prairie, funnily enough, I tried I've tried several prairies since, and never had anywhere near that success. But <laughs> my goodness me, I loved him, and of course, uh, you know he uh, he did dive in. I think after a moorhen, he dived into a pond on my ground on a very cold late November morning. And that was that I couldn't get him back to the car and get him warmed up in time. Yeah. I, uh, a prairie, especially a, a tearsel prairie is, is another bird species that I, I will try and fly again. Yeah. Um, eventually I, I, I had one a, a few years back mm-hmm. that, um, I was super close to, to getting ready to hunt and, um, was doing very well. And then all of a sudden overnight just died of a, of an infection yeah. that it was, not symptom it was asymptomatic yeah, yeah. with and but that was a rare bird and that my my wife even liked that bird wow. and so i mean like that it, yeah i i let's just say whenever you you talk about that mm-hmm. prairie in, in that respect mm-hmm. then yes I, I i understand whenever you you put all this work in and i, I had that bird as a as kind of a of a late pulled is yeah. you know and and um and kind of did the same type of deal mm-hmm. spent four months getting him you know, yeah. ready to go and, and whatever. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's just, it's just over. Yeah. And yeah. so I get it. At least, at least you had two months of decent hunting with yeah. yours. I, yeah. I, I, I was so close to getting to the point where I was yeah. ready to, to start doing the real thing. And then, yeah. yeah. So, but, well, uh, to, to, to quote Shakespeare, violent delights have violent ends, don't they? Yeah. yeah. That's, that's a good saying for sure. But, yeah. but, um, well, I mean, so as far as, you know, I, I mentioned the, uh, the pearls of wisdom thing to you or the, uh, you know, is there anything, um, a piece of advice, um, any kind of, I don't know, mm. words of wisdom, anything you'd like to pass on to other right. generations or. Right. And talking specifically about individual hawks and falcons, I believe that modern falconers give up, particularly where there is easy, um, easy access to, to others. I think we give up too soon. And so I would say to falconers, actually work harder and work longer on some, uh, a falcon before you discard it. We, t- we hear too often, oh, this one's not very good. Or, you know, I'm going to get something else because uh, this one won't do. I believe that most of them will. Not all, but most of them will do what we want if we get the triggers right. So I, I would just say to falconers, work harder on on these individual hawks and falcons because they can produce it. Um, don't give up and just go out next year and buy another one. Yeah. Well, I mean, and yeah, I I think that's that's good advice. And I there there are um, so many people who have told me that long wings, especially, can take. You know, sometimes uh-huh. years to to yeah. fully mature and, and realize their potential. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I think if you're if you're someone sometimes that um, I don't know is, is apt mm-hmm. to a little bit less patience and mm-hmm. and maybe a different species might yeah. might work better. I mean, there's some guys that I know that uh, 
you know, there, there's a reason they fly exhibitors and goshawks and things like that for a reason. Because you can tell pretty quick if one yeah, of those is yeah. gonna is gonna turn out to to be that's a right. yeah an avid an avid yeah. hunter or not. But uh, but no, I think that's a, that's a good piece of advice. And um, I mean, if um, if anyone wants to learn any more about um, you know the board or any other aspects of how they can get involved in some of the more political advocacy side of things um, in regards to your region. I mean, where can they go to find more about that? Yeah, well, I mean, our, I mean, the British Falconers Club has a, uh, you know, has a, a good social media presence and the office is uh, is manned by a professional uh, secretary who um, so we're, the british falconers club are easy to contact the same applies for the hawk board um you know we're well well publicized and what have you and believe you me if anybody wants to contribute i will welcome them with open arms because it is getting people and i absolutely understand why it's not for everybody it's obviously suited me, but it's not for everybody. But I absolutely understand that uh, other people want to do other things. But if anybody thought, yeah, I want to give a little bit back or I want to, you know, I could actually do that. I could, uh, I could, uh, you know, bring this to uh, to discussion or represent my sport with uh, with DEFRA, the government department. Yeah, they, there are plenty of avenues to do that. And we are not exclusive. We are, you know, this is very much meritocratic. It is not something that, uh, you know, you have to have been born with a silver spoon in your mouth to do, you know, and we, um, you know, we have some people who would both support and indeed we have in the Hawk Board, we have uh, uh, a, a couple of, of very promising young, uh, young new members who will take out their positions this autumn. Um, who uh, who will be what we call elected specialists? So the ones who uh, who do the donkey work. Um, we uh, you know we have some really good potential there, but you know people need to come forward. Falconers need to come forward. Um, equally, we uh, you know we liaise across the world through IAF and through NAFA and through the Middle East Falconry Clubs. Um, and uh, you know, falconry is a pretty big family. We're pretty, uh, we're pretty good. I mean, we have lots of differences. Don't get me wrong, but we're pretty good at when when the chips are down. We do support each other, and of course, we feed off the expertise of the whole fraternity of falconry, the whole family, not just our our national entity. Well, I think it's very well said. And um, yeah, I mean, like I said, I, I appreciate you taking the time sitting here um in the the swelteringly hot um you know whatever <laughs> it is a little bit yeah <laughs> yeah i mean uh yeah for those listening we we've had to make the uh the best of what we got as far as arrangements over the the weekend and um yeah i've been recording most of these in a uh, yeah. a very hot uh I don't know. You could almost call it a solarium. I don't know, <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. but, uh, yeah, it is what it is. But I mean, yeah, thank you for, for taking the time and kind of, uh, going a little bit more in depth about yourself and sharing some of your stories. And it's been nice getting to know you over this weekend. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. And let's go, uh, let's go not be hot anymore. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs>